Poetry and science can both seem inaccessible. They often employ obscure language or terminology. It can even seem that they're not interested in engaging audiences. And they can seem to have very different intentions. On the one hand, poetry seems to be about subjective self-expression, and science about the objective representation of the world. Our guest today, Sam Illingworth, challenges these assumptions. Sam is an associate professor at Edinburgh Napier University. He's pioneering ways in which poetry can make science inclusive, not just by using poetry to communicate science, but by bringing people into science, by allowing people to, both lay people and science people, to engage at a similar level, expressing their concerns and their interests through the medium of poetry. Sam's also written a wonderful historical book, A Sonnet to Science, which presents six small biographies of scientists who wrote poetry and looks to understand why they wrote poetry, how it informed their work, or was it simply an escape from it? For me, Sam is living out the intention that Miroslav Holub expressed when he said that he wanted to make poetry for people untouched by poetry. And that's something I'd like to achieve with this podcast by showing those who are interested in multiverses the beauty of verses, and those who don't really care about either, the beauty of both. We end this episode with a reading from Walt Whitman, where he seems to complain that science strips away the beauty of the natural world. But I want to start with a verse from the same poet that celebrates science and brings in notions of democracy, universality, freedom. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I'm James Robinson. This is Multiverses. Sam Illingworth, uh, thank you for joining me on Multiverses. Science and poetry might seem to some a bit like oil and water uh, and representing two very distinct cultures. What drew you to study the places where they touch? It's a very good question and obviously probably defines what you'd have hoped <laughs> why I'm doing what I do. In all honesty, I kind of stumbled on it. So I did um, a PhD in atmospheric physics at the University of Leicester. And at the same time, I was also the president of the theatre society and was really mm -hmm. interested in using theatre as a way to communicate science, like writing plays about it and stuff. But after my PhD, which I enjoyed, I was really ready to leave academia and was fortunate to get a placement as a scholar with the Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation and went over mm -hmm. to Japan and did a lot of work looking at the intersections between science and theatre and worked under a very famous um, Japanese director called Yukio Ninagawa. And then I kind of realised, oh, I still want to communicate and diversify science, but I don't think I've really got the contacts or the background yet to go through theatre. So I'm going to transition back into postdoc work and bizarrely this postdoc came up at the University of Manchester where I was like this looks vaguely familiar to my PhD although my PhD was using satellites to make measurements of greenhouse gases at the earth's surface but this was using an aircraft 
and I thought I'll, I'll apply. It, it turns out that the whole postdoc was written around the code that I had actually written myself. So I was like, if, if I don't get this job, there's something incredibly wrong <laughs> with the system. And, and anyway, I got that and was continued doing a bit of science communication work, like public engagement. And then a lectureship came up at Manchester Metropolitan University and I applied for it and, and got it. And this was, you know, I was only really th- two, three years out of my PhD, so very early stage still. And I realized that I was now doing a job with tenure as a lecturer in an area that I didn't really know that much about. So like I knew what, I thought I knew what good science communication was and what outreach was and what public engagement was. But I didn't really know that much about the discipline. Um, And so I obviously have to read a lot. And in doing so, I wanted to try and find a niche And I don't know why I didn't really focus on theatre, but it came to me one day that what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a science poem. And so I wrote a poem about science. I've always written poetry because I'm a white middle-class dude. So I obviously thought I was Byron. Um, And grateful to report I have yet to die from syphilis. But basically, I started writing this blog called The Poetry of Science where I just wrote poems about science. And then that developed into every week I wrote a piece about, a a poem about a piece of scientific research. And it was very didactic to start with, you know, ocean acidification, oh me, oh my, increases by 1.3425. You know, that kind of horrible, horrible rhyme. And then I realized that I don't need to be so didactic and actually I can include a non-expert summary and actually the poetry itself Mm. can introduce the audience to the research, but also a non-scientific audience, help the scientific audience to view the research through a new lens. And this started off as a blog that was read by like 20 people a month max. And then started nine years ago. Last year, I think I had over 150,000 unique visitors so it's a lot of work, um, but it created this base. And then from that, I started to explore the discipline a bit more. And I realized that, look, poetry is a really powerful way for communicating research to an audience in a one-way direction. Um, but it's still very much that approach to science communication is still a little bit um non-inclusive because it's the scientist or in this case the communicator determining what they think is important or what they think is interesting and around the same time I was doing a lot of poetry writing myself and just um, and slam poetry and I found poetry writing workshops to be this incredibly inclusive engaging format that you could take on your work and people were critical of it but really supportive in a really safe environment and I thought about maybe we could use poetry as a medium for developing dialogues. So when you're working with non-scientists and scientists, you want them to engage in dialogues. Let's say for the example I always give, James, is flood risk. So imagine that we're working in inner city Manchester and we're designing a flood risk mitigation strategy for an area that floods. I, as a scientist, could have all the data, all the knowledge, all the satellite imagery, but if I don't talk to the people who live there, 
I won't get an insight as to what will and won't work because certain people will be less inclined to use that potential mitigation strategy. But also they'll have like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of data of just living there. So we need the non-scientists who are still experts to communicate with the scientists. But when we engage in these dialogues, even with really empathetic, non-patronizing scientists, we have what I've called hierarchies of intellect to become established. So as a non-scientist, if you present your opinion, lived experience, knowledge, tax expertise, sometimes you might feel a little bit, I guess, intimidated by the person who's got 20 letters after their name. So what we do now and what I developed is this idea of we write poetry together as a starting point for dialogue because writing poetry mm. collaboratively works for three reasons. One, it gives permission to the non-scientists because you can't really be attacked for the validity of a poem. Um, two, it gives permission to the scientists because it enables them to display an element of pathos or emotion that they're not normally, mm. in inverted commas, allowed to display. And thirdly, it creates this sense of shared vulnerability. So when you've seen a learned professor stand up and read, I don't know, a badly rhymed sonnet or a filthy limerick or a terrible mm -hmm. haiku, you realize that actually there isn't them and us, it's just us. And a lot of the work I do and did is working with marginalized communities, so refugees, asylum seekers, people living with mental health needs. And poetry just is this incredible platform for people's voices to be platformed. Um, and so what started off as this, you know, pet project really as a way of communicating research that I thought was important has now developed into this whole research methodology um, about how we can use poetry as a way of diversifying science. And then from that, we can also, another research method I've developed is something called poetic content analysis. So in qualitative research, which is research that involves words rather than numbers, we would, one of the ways in which we can analyze data is something called thematic content analysis, where we basically read through interviews or um, focus group transcripts or survey responses and look for any emergent narratives that might come through. So what poetic content analysis does is something different. Instead of having interviews or surveys, we use poems. And so we mm -hmm. invite people to write poetry or we look at poetry that's been written over a long time period naturally, organically about a specific topic and we look for any emergent themes or narratives and what we find is that people are sometimes able to speak in poetry what they can't normally say in interviews, focus groups, surveys. So that's a very, very long answer to your question but it, it kind of happened organically and where I think my training as a scientist helped was in always reflecting on it and thinking about the scientific method throughout all of this. So rather than just doing something and hoping that it worked, thinking, okay, what's my hypothesis? How am I going to test that hypothesis? How am I going to revisit that hypothesis? And 
I mean, I can go on about all the work we're doing in this field at the moment, but that, that's kind of where it's developed. I'm not the only person to be doing this, but uh, and I, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but I think I'm one of the people in the world who's probably leading on this area of you know, a very, very niche area, but very rewarding area as well of using poetry, not just to communicate to an audience, but also to effectively develop dialogues between mm. scientific and non-scientific audiences. Yeah, I think that's a lovely insight that poetry doesn't just have to be a mechanism for a lone genius broadcasting their ideas, but you're using it to sort of the analogy that comes to my mind, and this is very prosaic perhaps, is how, you know, companies try to get some innovation going by taking everyone to an offsite, right? And they just try to change the dynamic by moving everyone out of the office office and um, giving them all some libations and so forth. But poetry is maybe try is a way of doing something similar. It's creating a different space, putting people in a different place where they're able to talk to one another, as you say, at a similar level, you break down this this hierarchy um, that people can perceive. And also maybe they're able, able to access um, ideas that they wouldn't necessarily be able to surface if you were just asking them to fill in a survey. I mean, it, it encourages a very um, open way of thinking, I think. Absolutely. I mean, two examples from that. So work that one of my close colleagues, um, Professor Kirsten Jack, um, we did a lot of we do a lot of work on using poetry to engage nurses and student nurses. And one of the problems that student nurses face is, even though they're actually very good at reflecting, is talking about certain topics like compassion fatigue, which you know is the fatigue of compassion. And you can imagine that that's quite a difficult thing to discuss or to bring up. You don't want to admit to being having had so much compassion that you're fatigued by it. So instead, by inviting them to write poems about it, you kind of distance yourself from the fact, and then you're no longer talking about the incident. You're talking about the poem. And so that became a really effective way of encouraging people to talk about things that were a difficult topic. And then similarly, poetry is a really, really powerful tool. And again, I'd, off I'd offer uh, this piece of advice stroke tool to your listeners. Um, it's a great way of tapping into the creativity incubation period. So, you know, if you're working on a problem, it can be in the lab, it can be a computer, it can be anything, and you kind of reach that impasse. And you know, you just, you know, instinctively, you need to walk away from it and just have a bit of time apart. And so you leave it and you walk away. And then an hour, two hours, a day later, you're stepping into the shower, onto the train, making dinner, and the solution comes to you because it's been incubating. But that's a very passive way of targeting that incubation period. So instead, what I advise people to do is to write a poem about it. So the next time you have a problem, write a poem about it. And I'm not saying automatically you're going to have the gilded 
answer to it but it engages your brain differently and you can even if you don't come up with the exact solution you come up with translational um or i guess adjunct solutions or ideas and you know it's a very simple process how i do it is i just have a one minute word dump where i think of all the words i can about the problem and then i set my i give myself a format i just google poetic forms and then write a form poem according to that form and again using a form even though I don't have to do it, it provides a scaffolding for creativity. Because you know, saying write a poem is a bit like saying do some science or invent something. It's quite nebulous. Whereas having a form, be it a sonnet, a haiku, a girls or whatever, can help to do that. So yeah, I would invite yourself and your listeners to try that out the next time you have a reach an impasse. And it's a really effective way of using poetry to tap into a part of the brain that you might not automatically have access to mm. yeah I, I i'll definitely want to give that a go um i i think also coming back the idea of using a form as a scaffolding it also seems to me that sometimes having a set of constraints can force one to work a little bit harder you know if, if you have to fit a certain rhyme scheme or a certain syllabic structure it might mean you have to look further for the words that you need um, and you don't reach for the the obvious one, the one that first comes to your mind. And perhaps that that assists the process as well. Definitely. And like speaking as a writer myself, I mean, I don't claim to be a Pulitzer or Forward Prize winning poet, but I have written thousands of poems. So I'm I'm better than I was. And I used to write religiously to form. And, you know, try to, because another thing you can do is you can pick a form where the actual structure helps to reinforce the narrative. So, you know, for example, a haiku always has a juxtaposition or a contrast in it. So it's a really nice poem to introduce a contrast or a juxtaposition to a topic. And doing so, I, I don't write with structure as much anymore, but I found that it really helped me to learn how to write poetically. So... And this sounds incredibly pretentious, but I, I mean it in a very honest way. Like it really helped me to find my own poetic voice. And now I feel as though I don't need the structure or the stabilizers as much anymore to be able to write in a way that I would consider to be poetic. Um, um, I would loosely define a poem as anything that has rhythm. Um, and I think that's quite an inclusive definition but it helped me to find my rhythm. And so, yeah, again, for people who are interested in writing poetry, I think finding some poetic formal meters to start with and work towards and then sticking to those for the reasons you suggest, that it helps you to work a bit harder, but it also helps you to find that uh, your own sense of, um, I guess, inner rhythm. Hmm. Hats off to you for for writing thousands of poems, and it was something I was thinking about earlier today when I was listening to some of your um, episodes from uh, the Science of Poetry. And I think you've got uh, over two hundred, uh, just over two hundred there now. And uh, I really have to, uh, yeah, take my hat off to you for firstly finding every week some scientific <laughs> insight to to write about, then writing a poem about it. Um, and then also you, you introduce every week another poem that's sort of uh, maybe not 
directly speaking to the to the science, but somehow um, offers an insight into to a similar subject. Um, how has that changed your your weekly routine? I mean, how does it change how you read scientific papers? Oh, it's a good point. It's really useful for me because it means that every week I have to read at least one scientific paper, and it means that every week I have to read at least one of the poem. And in reality, I read probably several abstracts to work out the best one. So my brief selection process is I look through, there's an aggregator of news releases, press releases called Eureka, which is really, really good. It's released by AAAS, which is the same people who do science, the publication. Science Daily is another good um, exemplar. And I just kind of look for the headlines that I think will resonate with people. And then I try to always pick a paper that's open access. I don't always succeed, but nine times out of 10, I do so that, you know, there's no paywall. People can just access the work. And then it honestly depends how much time I've got. If I'm in like a really busy week, I'll tend to go for a subject that I know well, like the environmental sciences, the atmospheric mm. sciences. If I've got a bit more time, I'll challenge my, or space science. That's my first degree. If it's a bit more time that week, I'll challenge myself, go for like healthcare or biology or like quantum biology or something. Um, and then I'll then I'll tend to write a like two paragraph non-expert summary of the piece mm-hmm. to start with, and then I'll use that as kind of a seed for writing the poem. Mm. Um, and then after I've written it, I'll record the podcast uh, the po- for the poetry of science, and then I'll try and find a poem that I think is tangential or related to it. Um, but again, in reality, it means I'll end up reading like four or five which is cool. And I try to have a diversity of voices there as well um, across various characteristics. But it is cool because it means that, you know, I'm an associate professor now and um, everyone's busy, but I don't have as much time to read frontier research as I used to. So it's really cool for keeping my eye in with that. And then similarly with poetry. And that's how I've discovered some poems I absolutely love. And I'm like, I'll end up just annoyingly sometimes going down a rabbit hole and like losing an afternoon being like I'm just reading all these poems now but that's cool as well um and so yeah and I I guess the whole like you get better at doing things as well don't you right so what would have taken me that would have been a whole day's process before probably get down to about three or four hours now impressive yeah yeah I, I think it's a really nice format one thing i particularly like is how you first read the poem and then you give the science behind it and then you read it again and it's incredible how much your understanding or just changes from the first to the second reading and it's like it's a completely different piece almost even though the words are the same Um, and that that's always striking to me and i think it is one of the challenges with poetry that that often it requires a lot of context. Um, and I think that can be something that that really challenges uh, people. No, definitely. And thank you for saying that's really kind. And that was absolutely my intention. So I'm glad it worked. Um, I guess you're, you're touching on a subject that's very important and that comes up a lot, which is, um, you know, a lot of my work is really grounded in trying to diversify science and trying to open it up. Uh, and then people always say, you're trying to make science less exclusionary and exclusive. So the reason that you're picking poetry again is <laughs> yeah. why. Um, right. And my answer to that is always that 
you need to work hard with an audience to do two things. One, give them permission that it's okay to hate poetry that other people love and love poetry that other people hate and to find poetry that that speaks for them and to them. Now, I don't want to like denigrate the work of professors of poetry or criticism because it's really important. But for me, the only person who knows what a poem's about is the person who wrote it. But when you read the poem, you bring all of yourself to that poem, all of your lived experiences, everything. And there's no way that the poet could have known about what you have experienced in your life up until that point. So why is your reading of the poem any more or less correct than the poet's? It's just different. And similarly, when you're like a professor of English literature or criticism, you're bringing a different set of skills to that contextualization. It's no more or less correct. It's just different. And you know, if you read a lot of poetry, you'll know this, that you can read a poem on a Monday and you can have a completely different experience to it on a Friday or, or different points in your life as well. So I always just say that, you know, whatever you, when people are reading poems, and I got taught poetry really inclusively at high school, actually, I had very good English teachers, but a lot of people are kind of put off it by that. Oh, and now we've encountered the word black raven in the poem, hence that must mean death. And it's like, it could just be a black raven. You know, <laughs> you know, it could be like whatever you want to take from it. So it's kind of encouraging people to take from poetry what they take from it and that their experience and their analysis of it is no more or less correct than anybody else's. And then working with that audience to say, look, you know, what do you like? Like I'm talking to a colleague at the moment and she, they were saying that they hate poetry. And I was like, why do you hate poetry? Like, let's just like find some poems that that you love. And like, I like apologies for repeat. I always use this as an example, right? I like lots of different types of music, yeah. But I hate Finnish death metal. And if I'd only ever heard Finnish death metal, I'd say I hated music. And I think it's the same with poetry. I think people have been... A lot of people have been introduced to a very specific type of poetry, especially in the West, where you've probably been introduced to a lot of white 16th century men who write some cool stuff, but there's loads of different poetry. And it's just about expanding people, working with them and giving them the tools to find poetry and to go, do you know what? I like that one. I don't like that one. And, you know, again, a lot of what I do sounds incredibly trite, but the secret objective I have for doing any work is that I just want people to welcome poetry into their lives a bit more because it's a really powerful force for good. And so if anything that I do, if people are like a little bit more inclined just to give poetry a go, and it takes a bit of work, then then I've succeeded. But yeah, in, in answer to your question and the broader one of, the difficulties of people engaging with poetry, I totally get that challenge. So it's about working with that audience to understand their needs, their lived experiences, and find poetry that speaks with them and to them as well. Yeah, I'm sort of reminded of something. Uh, John Retty, who was a who was a poet who led a group in London, that the Torriano Avenue. He he once said that poetry exists in 
three places in in the mind um and on on the paper and in the voice and he always said that the voice was one of the most important places because it was sort of the most democratic you don't mm. need to read right and I think traditionally poetry has not been an elitist pursuit or an enjoyment. Um, you know, if we think back to troubadours and bards, and you know, that would have been popular entertainment, right? Which is now, you know, Netflix or, or whatever. But um, it, there's no need. There's nothing inherent in the medium that that makes it a yeah a niche pursuit. And I think you know Byron was wildly popular in his day yeah right? um, i think you're right and and i think you're exactly right and you know that speaks to the fact that the spoken word community as exists now is very inclusive you know and, and mm. written poetry is kind of catching up as well but there is that democratization of oral tradition that comes through speaking and sharing poetry and and i often recommend one of the ways, especially for groups that feel as though they don't feel welcome by the written word, is to bring them along to like a like an open mic night or like in a really great poet. Because <clears throat> they just kind of, it's just a different experience, really. I have a helicopter going overhead right now. I don't know if you can pick that up. But, no, uh, no, I can't hear it at all. No, no, <laughs> yeah, very good. Science or technology intrudes on the discussion of poetry. Um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your book, which I've just um, finished, A Sonnet to Science, and I really enjoyed, as I think uh, it's sort of, yeah, it, it alludes to a few things that we, we've talked about. Um, maybe if I start with this, you, you mentioned that you sort of came into this the, sci the scientific way. So a scientist by training uh, and then exploring uh, the arts via theatre, coming back into science and then into science communication. Um, and your book, on Sonnet to Science, looks at scientists who also wrote poetry. So it has six short biographies. Um, it, yeah, it's, it seems to me, firstly, that, that that's maybe an easier way to go. Like we see it, it is harder, <laughs> you know, to be a scientist, um, to go from being a poet to a scientist. And I, I don't know if we have examples of that. I, I can't really think of any. Um, and the other thing that really struck me about the book, actually, was sort of like a running theme, is that so many of these scientists were reluctant to classify themselves or define themselves as poets. Even mm. Miroslav Holub, and by the way, he was just a wonderful discovery from that book. I just oh, love cool. <laughs> <laughs> just, So, so funny. Um, so, I don't know, precise. Uh, yeah. Um, but... He, he's a far more successful poet and will be remembered for his poetry for a long time. Um, he was, you know, he made contributions in the field of mm. immunology, but not sort of, um, I, I guess, you know, that legacy will, will not be as long lived. Uh, and, and he, again, um, in common with, um, I guess, uh, you know, James Clark Maxwell. Okay, James Clark Maxwell really was a big scientist, so fair enough, right? You might want <laughs> fair enough to sign yourself as a as a scientist there. But you know, he he also kind of saw poetry as a hobby. Humphrey Davy, I think, he have this wonderful quote where he says that the the purpose of I'm just trying to read it, I can't see it, but it, something like the purpose of science is to to inform and of poetry is to to mm. amuse. And that's a little bit denigrating, <laughs> you know, especially for someone who wrote quite a quite a lot of poetry. Yeah. Um I guess the one person who maybe was not ashamed herself of being a poet 
but was sort of discouraged from it was was Ada Lovelace. And she tried to embrace this, but both her mother and her, her husband seemed to yeah, disapprove of it at, at every turn. Um, it, is this something that you, you you think we still see today? Do you see scientists who struggle in your workshops yeah. and to write, really to, to, you know, say, I can write poetry? No, it's a really good question. I'm, well, I guess a few things to touch on. Like, I'm really, really glad you like Holub. He's amazing. Like he's, he's written loads of really cool travelogues as well. Um, and like little short mini essays he's a bit he reminds me of like a much earlier version of oliver Sacks. so he had like a really cool book called the jingle bell delusion which i'd recommend checking out he was like kind of a um you know notes from america type person and just wrote amazingly and like his poetry is just hilarious and like you know as i talk about in the book he lived under several occupations in what was czechoslovakia but his poetry is like so like uplifting and hopeful um i think davy's funny because you know he he was like just such a brilliant experimentalist and i like you know i love the fact that he, when he was getting high on nitrous oxide he just wrote yeah. poetry about it and looked at the extent to which it affected his literary form and you know and ada lovelace like you say for people who might not know ada lovelace who worked with Charles Babbage, but she was probably the world's first computer programmer. But her dad was Lord Byron, who we've already mentioned several times. Mm. So, you know, she was always fighting against that a bit. And like her mother, like really disliked Byron because they were estranged. And so Lovelace basically was given the education of a man at the time, which would not have normally been afforded a woman because her mother didn't want her to become a poet. <laughs> so like, that's why she became like that, which is great. I think, you know, your question around is, do you, I, I think it is more difficult for a poet to, like for a, sci- a poet to become a scientist. Um, I can think of some examples, but I think the bigger problem here is that there's an element of choice. And that certainly in the UK, mm. you know, if we think, when we're 14, we kind of have to decide what area we're going to be working in for the rest of our lives when we make our A-level decisions. And, you know, myself, I did maths, further maths, chemistry, physics, and only kept up writing because it was something I was interested in. I know different countries are different and things are changing ever so slightly. I think that it's always been a problem because even though, you know, some of the scientists that are in the book, like Maxwell, Davy, et cetera, even though they were afforded the space to be poets as well and that, you know, Corinthian spirit, it's because they were rich aristocrats, basically, which is why they were able Mm. to do it. Um, And I think there is a problem with choice, but I know loads of scientists who are incredibly talented poets, artists, musicians, sculptors, and likewise, I know loads of poets who you speak to them and they're like, their research brain is incredible. And you find that there's been this point in their lives where normally a teacher or a parents encouraged or discouraged them to go down a certain route. And if that one sliding door moment had changed, they'd probably be a doctor or a particle physicist. And that's part of the reason why we set up consilience. So Consilience is this um, a poetry journal uh, for art and poetry that explores scientific topics. 
And we wanted to create a space that looks at the intersections between the two and that celebrates people who fit on the margins and in between. And, and another reason we set up that journal is because just out of my own frustrations of being a poet. And when you submit work to a poetry journal, it's just normally like, thank you, that's amazing. Or more likely in my case, no thanks, no further comment. Whereas we know through science that the peer review system where mm. theoretically, although I know some desk rejects do exist, but theoretically your work goes out to independent adjudicators who then constructively critique your work and then you work in developing and improving it. So no work in science is either perfect or irregular to start with. It's just something to develop. So we wanted to take that peer review element and bring it into the world of poetry and art. So every quarter we invite people to submit their work and we don't desk reject anything out of hand unless it's like not science-based, not aligned to the theme of the issue or like really inflammatory or against our inclusion principles. And then each piece of poem or artwork goes out to two reviewers. They give some review comments and then the handling editor works with the poet or the artist in developing the piece. And, you know, it's subjective. So it's not like, like physics, which can be much more objective and right or wrong. And people can decide just to say, I don't want to make any of those changes. That's fine. But what we found is it's created this like environment people really want to be a part of. Like we set this up in almost three years ago now. And since then, we have published the work of well over 200 poets and artists. We're free to publish in, we're free to read. And we also have a team of 89 volunteers from across six continents, I think 13 time zones. Um, mixture of poets, scientists, science poets, poet scientists, people who just dig our vibes. Um, and that really arose from this issue that, you, that we were talking about of choice, that you shouldn't have to choose. That even if you're a frontier scientist, you can write poetry. Even if you're a professional poet, you can engage in science. And even if you're somewhere between or nowhere between, we want to hear your voice and think about how we can use poetry as a lens through which to interrogate, communicate, and diversify science. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so smart to take one of the methodologies of science, the, the peer review process, and say, well, we can use that here as well. I, I, I really like that. On the, well, I think, like, for, sorry, just briefly, like for me, as, as like a scientist yourself as well, James, like I, I was always struck. My favorite science was always when people had taken something from one discipline you know, that have been like there for 40, 50 mm. years, this, and then just applied it to another discipline and being like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is like just completely yeah. game changing. I remember yeah. vividly going to like a conference in the American Geophysical Union and seeing this, like it was around fire and someone had just like used this model that had like always been used in another discipline for like 50 years and like applied it to fire indexes. And it, mm. it, it just revolutionized the discipline. <laughs> just that insight of going, I'm not quit. I'm just putting this here, here. And when, <coughs> excuse me, when I dreamt up the idea of the journal, I was, for the listeners, James is perched in front of a really nice looking bookshelf. And <laughs> I used to have such a nice looking bookshelf in my old house. My others are now, my books are just hidden from my children at the moment. 
Um, and I remember like just looking around the bookshelf thinking, I need inspiration for a title for the journal. And I was just like, oh, cool. That book there, which I haven't read, called Consilience. Consilience, mm. that's a really nice word. <laughs> then I read this Edward O. Wilson book about consilience, which is all about the idea of using you know, the arts and the sciences to like reinforce or to challenge uh, like the other way around. And so I was like, wow, this is like an incredible happenstance that this is the case. So yeah, that's, sorry, that's, that's where that came from. But I totally, I love the idea of using one discipline or one idea in another one. Yeah, that, that's that's a great serendipitous story, and I think a brilliant advert for having lots of books, even ones that you haven't read, which I'm, I'm very guilty of myself. <laughs> um, but I have yeah, since read that book, I should say. But yeah, yeah, but and it's brilliant. But yeah, it was a very good advert for having unread books. <laughs> it's it's yeah, I think particularly having lots of different genres on your shelves is a is a healthy thing. It does remind me. Um, the thing that comes to my mind of, of just genre um, cutting or interdisciplinary research, I guess, is I love Jeffrey West's um, sort of change of career. So he was a, a sort of matter, a matter physicist for, for for many many years. I think until his late fifty, uh, late forties, maybe in fifties, and then he suddenly became interested in um, the problem of you know why why animals seem to have mammals seem to have five billion heartbeats. Um, and I think he got interested in this because he, in his family, there was kind of a, a history of people dying quite young. But essentially, he said, I'm going to take the methods of the, the, the numerical methods of physics, which seem strangely absent from biology, and try to figure out this, this problem and made, you know, really great inroads. Um, I don't know if you've read it, but there's a wonderful book called Scale, where he uh, looks at why it is that... Um, essentially why mammals, um, how the metabolism scales with um, the volume, and then also applies that to cities and all sorts. So it's, it's like a real entry point into loads of things. Um, I've slightly Ross lost was my... The same. I mean, Ronald Ross, I guess, who we, yeah. who's also in my book, was really similar. So he was the person who made the link between malaria and mosquitoes. Um, like, there's a it's slightly disingenuous and he actually had quite a lot of support that wasn't acknowledged mm. and he won a Nobel Prize. But what he's probably now more known for is that he he really was like the forefather of etymology. You know, this this idea, do I mean etymology? He was the forefather of like kind of entomology, sorry, of entomology. Yeah, it's like like yeah, it's different, very different things, sorry, <laughs> of entomology. And, you know, putting numerical methods towards the study of insects, which was, again, mm. Like now it seems such an obvious link to do, but at the time it was just like, I'm going to take these statistical models and apply them to insect populations. I just, I think that's just wild and just, yeah, amazing. I'm going to check out that book scale as well. That sounds really cool. Yeah. It's really lovely. The the thing that got me, I was, I was thinking about this problem of specialization again. And I, I remembered this quote from Marx where he says, you know, we, you can either be a hunter or a fisherman, or you can be a critical theorist, and but you have to be one or the other. And this is just the work of um, sort of the invisible hand of um, uh, what do you call it? Like um, division of labor, I guess. Right? Like, just things are more efficient that way. Uh, and his kind of answer was, well, no, you need to 
if you arrange things in a in a communist fashion, you can be um, what was it? A hunter in the morning, raise cattle in the afternoon, fish in the evening, and then be a critical theorist at, at night. Um, I, I don't think you need to <laughs> completely rearrange your society to <laughs> to to enable people to have these more rounded lives. And I also don't think that it leads to any kind of trade-off, right? I think what we're saying is if there was, you know, we don't know what we're missing out on because we silo um, so much. I I am confident though that the way, there do seem to be structural rearrangements. I mean, there's a lot of talk about four-day work weeks, for example. There's a lot more people who move between careers. um, And in academia, a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity, if I can say that correctly. Um, so I, I, I kind of wonder if we're at a, a kind of a blossoming point where people will be more no, than, definitely. you know, we'll have more souls than one, to use uh, a line from Fernando Passar. No, definitely. I, and I think, I think we are, but I still think there's a danger in that even though we're welcome to that collaboration as well, there's a danger to fall back on old tropes. So, you know, a lot of the work I do is around um, facilitating collaborations between, in the broadest sense, scientists and artists. I'm really moving away from this idea of, hey, I'm a scientist with X amount of money for my impact strategy. Can you please now, poet, write a poem about my research or dancer, choreograph a dance about my work or artist, about the finished point and instead start that collaboration at the start where we're inviting artists, poets, sculptors, dancers to contribute towards the research proposal. And similarly, where we're inviting the scientists to contribute towards the creative process. So like in in one of my other books, Science Communication Through Poetry, I talk about this manifesto for effective collaboration and like, the point one is begin at the start. And it's really about encouraging people to blur their boundaries and to acknowledge that even though you might be brought onto a project because of your discipline specific area, you should be allowed and encouraged to use that to explore new areas and yourself to grow in the process as well. And I think that that's a really effective way of helping to break down those barriers because there are more opportunities that are, that are coming along, but we need to think outside of those old silos in order to fully break them down as well. What I like about this is that it's not, as you say, there's kind of a, a classic trope of, Hey, let's, let's write, let's, let's base some art on science. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I came across, actually, this was because of um, your book. I, I ended up reading Shelley's In Defense of Poetry, which um, you refer to. And I found a line there that, that I'm going to read it just really stuck with me. He, I think he makes some very overblown claims, Shelley, of course. in that essay. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the famous one where he says that the poets are the unacknowledged legislators of um, the world, which is just absolutely beautiful and you know, to an extent true, but you could say that about so many things. Um, but... Uh, Another line is, he says that the poet's thoughts are the germ of the flowers and the fruits of latest time, which I take mm. to mean that not only are they sort of, you know, the fruits of scientific 
thinking. So not not only does poetry arise out of scientific thinking, but he says it's the germ of the flower. So mm. um, poetry is the sort of the inspiration um, for science. And actually, you finish your book, um, Sonnet to Science, with this line from Goethe where he says that that science arose from poetry and you know maybe in the the distant future they can be friends again which is lovely and it and it contains you know again this idea that perhaps there is i, I think it might be yeah as i hinted overblown to claim that you know po- science straightforwardly sprouts out of poetry but perhaps there is a kind of common inspiration and Again, in your book, you mention how the rainbow seemed to be in something so important to Ada Lovelace. She was adamant that she wanted a poem that she'd written about rainbows on her um, tomb. And you have you've done some lovely historical research to show that, yeah, she was, you know, rainbows were something that she was very scientifically interested in. Um, and one presumes that she, you know, she saw the object first and had a sense of wonder about mm. it, and then sort of, you know, that was the 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 gateway drug, if you like, into into no, science. No, definitely. Um, I'm so yeah. <laughs> I love in defense of poetry. It is overblown, but like you say, he's got like a turn of phrase that's amazing. I think it would be remiss, James, if we didn't at least have some poetry on this because there's a there's a poem that I'll read, yes. a short one. That's, oh, please. That, that just that also speaks to this really nicely. So this is by Robert Kelly, who's the former children's laureate of America. It's just called Science. Science explains nothing but holds all together as many things as it can count. Science is a basket, not a religion, he said, a cat, as big as a cat. The moon, the size of the moon, science is the same as poetry, only it uses the wrong words. (laughs) And I think at first it's like, okay, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's like, there's so many levels. One, it's like being very purposely provocative. But the mm. line I love more than any, one of my favorite lines in any poem ever is just a cat as big as a cat. And like, as a scientist, I just love the idea of the cat as an SI unit of measurement. How big is this table? Four cats. And it's just so cool. But I think, you know, it it it, it pokes fun at the notion of um what science is and you know i think he's being purposely provocative and he's not trying to say that poetry is better than science they're just different but there's another poem by Broutigan, richard Broutigan, like the famous beat poet um that he wrote um and i'll read it so he i think i can remember this one it was he, he wrote this in 67 it might be my book he wrote this in 67 right when he was poet in residence at caltech can you imagine what Caltech was like in the 60s? It must have been amazing to be there, right? So he wrote this poem in 67 when he was poet in residence for six months. I don't care how goddamn smart you guys are. I'm bored. It's been raining like hell all day long and there's nothing to do. And that was it. And like, at, <laughs> at, first, right, at first you're like, typical poet. Six months work, and that's what he comes out with. But for me, and this this really harks back to the whole purpose of why poetry would be powerful. Broutigan's a smart guy, right? He's like trout trout fishing in America is like one of my favorite books. He's he's incredible. If Richard Broutigan is with you for six months, and that's the impression he gets that he's bored, 
you are doing something really wrong if you're at Caltech in the 60s and not able to communicate what you're doing in a way that encourages, enables, and inspires. So mm. again, this goes back to that, that the quote from Shelley, like at, at surface level, you're like, okay, great. This is a bit juvenile, but actually my interpretation of the poem is when you, you peel back the layer of it, it's just like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Why am I not inspired by this work that's taking place at the California Institute of Technology in the 1960s, which where I know from the scientific research that was done at the time that you were making incredible advances. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I love that poem because it just reminds me of sometimes science needs to take themselves a little bit less seriously, but also remind themselves that not everybody's just going to dig what you do because it's important to you. You really need to think about your audience and how you can work with them to make sure that the work you're doing doesn't just engage them, but also positively impact them as well. Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, that's absolutely what we need to ask of science, right? Science shouldn't just be a feeder for technology, right? It's <laughs> there. It's not, and I, I think scientists don't think this either. They, they don't think of themselves as kind of instrumentalists who are just mm. poking at things and see how they move so that they can build better widgets, right? They're trying to uncover fascinating things about the world. And we shouldn't let them keep that sense of discovery to themselves, right? They they have to broadcast it. Um, I love that poem by Kelly as well. It, uh, yeah, a cat the size of a cat. It makes my mind go so many ways. One is, I remember going <laughs> to a lecture on special, uh, sorry, general relativity by James Binney, who's really well esteemed um, scientist, and he sort of at some point he just said all units are ridiculous, right? <laughs> you can have like, you know, I, and he was kind of commenting on like, oh, we'll just say that the speed of light is one, right? <laughs> which is a common thing that you do in general relativity to like remove a lot of symbols. Um, but, you know, the point is there's, we don't really have a, we don't have a yardstick for the universe. Um, I had actually just recorded, actually, I think I just, just released it today, a um, an episode with Julian Barber, who, you know, makes a good point that there's no external measuring ruler for the universe. Whatever you're going to measure things by, you have to find it inside. Uh, and so it's it's also lovely the way that Kelly kind of, I think, also mocks a little bit poetry by comparing things to things. Mm, totally. um, and who is it who wrote Embryo a Yo-Yo? Um, Billy Collins. He's got this yeah. poem, The Trouble with Poetry, right? <laughs> I can see I love that poem. It. He's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he just says, when will it ever stop? You know, when only when everything has com been compared to every other thing in the world, right? <laughs> only when we've made every kind of analogy and simile and uh, figure of speech like possible. The ultimate meta poet. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's just like, but yeah, no, that's a cool analogy. And I totally dig that as well. Like, um, every measurement a unit that we come up with is us just in like time. Like we just decided to split it into this amount. Like it's not right. It's just the way that we pass it. And like people forget that I think, right. Or that even law, like even, you know, fundamental laws, they're just our interpretation of them. They're not, they're not actually fundamental to the universe. Are they? The universe happens whether they exist or not. It's just, this is our best 
way of making sense of it. And like, again, yeah. coming back to that theme of science versus poetry, it, again, it's such an obvious analogy, but they're, they're just different pieces of the same jigsaw puzzle. Like science doesn't have all of the pieces to itself. Poetry doesn't have all of the pieces to itself, but together they kind of do give you a much better picture of everything that's going on. And I think we, you know, we, we're so inclined these, like even despite the movement away from silos, people are so inclined, I think, to speak in absolutes. And science does not, nor will it ever have the complete picture of the universe. And poetry doesn't have, you know, a monopoly on artistic expression. Both, I'm sure you're the same, James. I, I know it sounds incredibly cringe, but I think back to when I did my physics degree. Like, you know, Maxwell's equations are incredibly beautiful things to look at. Mm. I know they're not technically his yeah. equations, but they're beautiful things to look at. Like, and you look at the underlying maths and stuff, and it's like, that is so, like, objectively, I think, creative and artistic and beautiful. And then you look at some of the insights that are made by poetry. So, you know, the Erasmus Darwin poem? So Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's, I always forget, this great-grandfather, he was, like, also, like, one of the foremost fathers of botany, you know, like, alongside Linnaeus. And he yeah. had the this two. Uh, he had basically two volumes of work about six inches thick each, in which he categorised the entire known flora and fauna of the of the world in rhyming couplets. But there's also a section in there in like the 1700s where he talks about the Big Bang. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, right. I'm like, dude, this isn't. This hasn't even. I'm gonna like if you bear with me, um, whilst I just um, search for it because it's a cool, it's a really cool passage from his book. I can't remember off by heart. Sorry, it's like it's like very uh, romantic uh, like language, but you'll you I think you'll really like it. It's just really really cool. Um, so yeah, this poem is, so it's from the Botanic Garden, a poem in two parts where, you know, each one is a book. So written by Erasmus Darwin in 1791. I'll just read this section um, in rhyming couplets. Roll on ye stars, exulting youthful prime. Mark with bright curves the printless steps of time. Near and more near your beamy cards approach and lessening orbs on lessening orbs encroach. Flowers of the sky, ye too to age must yield, frail as your silken sisters of the field. Star after star from heaven's high arch shall rush, suns sink on suns, and systems, systems crush. Headlong extinct to one dark centre fall, and death and night and chaos mingle all, till o'er the wreck emerging from the storm, immortal nature lifts her changeful form, mounts from her funeral pyre on wings of flame, and soars and shines another and the same. And it's like, dude, you're writing about the concept of the big crush, the big bang, like in the 1700s. And we know that this wasn't, you know, mathematicized is not a word until like the early 1900s. I just think that's amazing. And like Poe similarly wrote around this topic much before the time. And 
it just is a great reminder that science doesn't have a monopoly on, yeah. uh, you know, on on research and on um, scientific thought. I guess. I think it's it's really interesting as well that my feeling is that as it was then, natural philosophy is, as as they would have called physics, um, and in, in fact many branches of science probably didn't have permission to make those sort of conjectures. And if you <laughs> if you read. Um, uh, Hume. I mean, he says. I mean, he wasn't a natural philosopher. But he was, you know, straight, straight old philosopher. He, um, you know, he said we, we shouldn't speculate about the beginning of, of you know, about things so distant as the kind of origin of of all the things that we see around us. Um, you know, he was a skeptic, obviously, and he thought, well, it's hard enough to even know. <laughs> <laughs> There's this like this table in front of me. Like, how, what, what hope do we have trying to speculate about those very distant things? And obviously, you could get in a lot of trouble <laughs> if you did try to. Yeah, kind of, yeah, of course, you know. of course. But but poetry was again like a kind of space which people could, um, you know, imagine these possibilities. Um, and, and to an extent, I think that's true today. I think we often within the paradigm of a particular theory, even though we almost always know that theory is incorrect, right? We know that there's some problem with general relativity or quantum um, mechanics because they, the two the two seem really good, but they can't both be true. Um, we know that much. And, you know, prior to that, we knew that, you know, there was something off with, uh, you know, Maxwell had done this great job unifying um, electric, electromagnetism and and uh or electricity and magnetism but there was something off with that because we oh, couldn't figure out this thing about the ether and then all these other little problems kept emerging and you have these kind of i mean kuhn would call it um paradigm shifts uh, but once you're in us inside a paradigm scientists speak with the utmost confidence that they mm. you know that they know that they have the truth um newton famously believed that uh the inverse square law of gravity had been kind of whispered in his ear by God. It's been revealed to him, and and there is there is a slight arrogance that that can stave off the the imagination that can take us to the the next shift. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I wonder if I I totally agree. I wonder if part of that is the nature of science, like especially in modern day where it's so competitive. And, you know, speaking as someone who writes grant applications, you don't write a grant application being like, oh, we're going to try and do this thing and it, it might work out and it might be okay. You know, it's, this is the most important scientific application in humanity. Not only are we going to solve this entire problem, but we're also going to be able to create, you know, 300 fish from a few scraps. And it's just like, I think the, the nature of that paradoxically to poets who you would assume to be you know bombastic actually they have that very deep introspection and ability to be to take themselves less seriously and i think that i think that's one of science and especially modern day science biggest problem in that it is almost like a religion in elements that it can't take itself it it needs to learn to take itself less seriously and I think doing so, and again, going back to the idea that we're talking, actually thinking about funding bodies and stuff, encouraging exploration, mm. like without impact outputs, just, 
you know, I'm not talking about wasting taxpayers' money, but I'm just creating a space where it's okay for us to fail, but to think about what we find through those failures as well. Because even in even in most fundamental science, we know that it's through those failures that we find the most important work anyway, right? Yeah. I think it's striking as well that some of the greatest scientific advances have been made by people on the edges sometimes. I'm, I'm thinking of Einstein out there in a patent office in Switzerland, keeping up with totally. what was going on in the academy, but not beholden to it. Um, and I mean, I, I also think back as again to this podcast I released this this morning with Julian Barber, who is an independent physicist and, and chose not to um, sort of join the academy, as it were, uh, and actually supported himself by translating um, journal papers. <laughs> he claims to have, he says he's translated over 70 million words, so he's probably written more, responsible for wow. more words on shelves than anyone ever. And I imagine that record's going to hold because no one's going to be translating that volume of, <laughs> of work now. We have just like machine translation to do it for us. Um, but yeah, he's, you know, he, he's working on very fundamental problems which are sort of outside of the approachable problems that 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 so much of modern science deals with i mean that's not to say that there's obviously people working with in academia on the real you know pushing the envelope things uh but it's not easy to to get into that position by by any means no definitely um, and i think that you know poetry can bring that nuance as well and i i, to- I totally agree and i think that people who are independent researchers who, or who are working on subjects that society's decided should be black or white um, are often denigrated. Um, I mean, I, I'm not talking about like unethical scientists, you know, like Andrew Wakefield and stuff. I'm talking about people who are genuinely trying to probe a question that isn't actually a yes or no answer, but there really is shades of grey in there. Um, you know, poetry is all about grey. But unfortunately, you know, thinking back to that hypothesis, the scientific method i mean we could go on about this for ages because you know there's, there's the danger isn't there that a lot of let's say for example like the politicization of research has come about by the fact that there's been great success in that medical model of having a control and an experimental group whereas you, for many reasons you can't really do a lot of science like that you can't do social science like that you can't do educational science like that because it's unethical and it's also not practical yeah. And I think there's that danger of only being one approach and trying to yeah. think about a yes, no answer because of a hypothesis being a yes, no. And that actually we need to encourage and create space for those marginal scientists, you know, as in on the margins and marginal scientific discourses as well. And yeah. it's really interesting you say that actually thinking about the permissions, you know, going back to Galileo and stuff that, Maybe poetry is the space to do this because you're a fort. Like nowadays, it's not necessarily going to be thrown into jail by the Vatican, but you're going to you if you use poetry as a way to explore these ideas, you're less likely to be denigrated by you know the academy or whatever. And I think that'll be a really interesting place to explore. You know, poetry being again this safe space for introspection, for, for experimentation as well that might not be allowed, in inverted commas, through traditional academic science. Yeah, just picking up on your comments about um, the scientific method, it, it, I think it's one of these things which is kind of how... that people 
are somewhat intimidated by, and I think very wrongly, because, I mean, as you point out, there's actually a plurality of approaches. And if anyone was asked to define what the scientific method is, and actually this is sort of like something that, uh, you know, I, you if one is a student of the philosophy of science, you, you do kind of get asked this as very, uh, you, you will actually never really be directly asked the question, what is the, you know, methods of science? What is the scientific method? Because everyone knows it's, t- it's impossible to answer. There isn't one. Like you're more likely to be asked like, why, why can't we define what the scientific method is? Um, because everything that you might say to is kind of unique about science, you can find other disciplines using mm. and you can find places where science scientists aren't adhering to that particular method. Um, and they're still getting results. And it's really hard to pin down. And I think it's very unhealthy to think that science has sort of discovered some key to um, figuring things out. Undoubtedly, it has like a lot of good methods. Um, but, you know, I think to some extent, the, you know, this, the kind of progress that it shows is, is more to do with the subject matter that it's choosing. And the fact that there is, you know, it's it has progress of a type that that's possible to um visualize more clearly i think than with with poetry uh yeah i complete tangent but um i can't remember i mean you were talking about how science you know science can also be beautiful and and it does strike me that some science is 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 very poetic even i think one of the methodologies so maybe not so much of a tangent that that science and and poetry share is a you know perhaps a principle of economy um mm. trying to distill something into its purest form and abstracting it away um i have like a very short poem here it's by fernando Pessoa, who i mentioned already newton's binomial theory newton's binomial theory is as beautiful as the venus of milo the fact is, precious few people care. And then it does something very odd. It just goes, oh, 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 with lots of exclamation marks, which might be factorial symbols. And it can be hard to decipher uh, Pessoa sometimes. This is actually Alvaro Campos, I think, one of Pessoa's um, sort of heteronyms, his alternate, one of his many souls, I guess. Um, but I mean, I think that's spot on that... Um, you know, that there are theories in science which are just so so exact and strikingly beautiful and, and papers as well that you could read as poetry. Um, I, I don't know if you have any any that come to your mind. I mean, I guess, yeah, like I think I said Maxwell's equations, obviously, but when I first encountered them, yeah. also the golden ratio, I remember like, I remember being really, like I loved loved doing a physics undergraduate degree and i remember doing like advanced quantum mechanics and like getting to the point where you know we could really explore where that had derived from i was like this is like i'd obviously fail my first year physics degree now but at the time i was like this is amazing and like you know just again everyone will know this but discovering that how like the fibonacci sequences just everywhere in nature and like obviously then related Mm. to the golden ratio as well was just yeah and, and like that that for me is like a really exactly that thing of like reducing it down i mean that that feels a really natural 
I guess, piece of science in that it, it, it perfectly, you've stumbled across something that must be true because you see it replicated in nature without any human interference at all. So like that for me is a really cool, a really cool thing. Yeah, I think it, it reminds me of how, yeah, a poet or even a single word can just tweak your perspective on things. Like how you mm. learn a new word and suddenly it seems to be appearing everywhere or it seems to be relevant everywhere. Certainly. Absolutely. I mean, one of, for me, just, I guess it's not a particular scientific theory, but something that is so incredible to me is just that as far as we know, you know, the stars are made of the same sort of stuff as we have here on Earth. <laughs> That's just, and how we can even figure that out is incredible. Um, actually, I, I'm now thinking of a line. I do love that the, the, there's so many things that you unearth and, and, and put into um, your, your book that I, I'm so frequently referencing, The Poetry of Science. But there's this, there's this wonderful footnote from um, Feynman in, I think, the Feynman lectures where he says, you know, what man is a poet if he can talk of Jupiter as a man, but not as this immense swirling mass of I think, ammonia and methane? Um, and yeah, again, I think it captures this so well um that well firstly the universe is made of this familiar stuff and yet it's on scales that are you know just mind-boggling and i guess as well it's it's a little bit of a you know here maybe this is a dig at the poets where we can't we've got to say we've been saying sometimes scientists <coughs> you've got to do the work right you've got to be communicating yourself better um but i think um you know there's a case to be made that in places poets can do more to engage themselves with with science Definitely. as well perhaps and, and it, like I, I totally agree and i think that um again this idea like for me that sometimes people challenge the concept that the more that you find out about the universe the less beautiful it becomes whereas i completely disagree mm. and i find the more that you find out about it the more amazing it becomes and again and, and maybe to offer a, a final poem as a way to to bring things to, to a natural a natural conclusion back to our first point of the role of science and poetry with science communication as well that science isn't perfect poetry isn't perfect and but that actually they are different ways of exploring the world but it's mm -hmm. there's so much responsibility on both to get it right um because otherwise you can just completely like disenfranchise and disinterest your audience and a poem which I know you'll know that I can offer as a final one if you want. I just think oh, yes. encapsulates this perfectly is when I heard the learned astronomer by Walt Whitman. Oh yes, yeah. And you know, just again for for listeners that might not be familiar with it, just really listen to this. But beyond the obvious context in which he talks about going to a, a, an astronomy lesson and walking away because he's not really that inspired by it, just think about rather than him leaving. Imagine that you want to be the scientist that makes him not want to initially leave, but rather yeah. to first listen to what you want to say and then go and explore outside as well. But then also temper that with the fact that the whole point about science is your own personal exploration, which you're welcome, entitled and encouraged to do as well as listening to learned voices. 
So this is When I Heard the Learned Astronomer by Walt Whitman, written in 1865. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer, where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding, out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Thank you. I think, I, although I love Walt Whitman, it's one of those poems I disagree with, and yet I love it. And I think that's just a wonderful <laughs> illustration of just the power of poetry, that you can love something that you, you disagree with. Yeah, what a wonderful what a wonderful note to end on. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I want to, again, just um, encourage listeners to to seek out your, your podcast uh, and your books. So the... Um, the Poetry of Science, and there's uh, this book, The a Sonnet to Science. You also have a book about, um, you've edited a book on um, poetry about climate change, uh, change of climate, uh, and your journal, Consilience, as well. Uh, so many things for people to to look at. Um, thank you so much, Sam Ellingworth. Thanks, James. And yeah, really enjoyed this chat. Thank you very much. <laughs>